0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 65, The Italian Rebirth, Part 1. Last time I closed the episode with a mention of the beginnings of formalised opera and ballet as distinct art forms that developed in the early Renaissance from more ancient folk traditions. That formalisation and the movement of the arts across Europe happened because of interactions between the royalty and noble houses of Europe, And it was not only opera and ballet that were transformed through these higher echelons of society. The early non-religious theatre also found a home in the European courts and great houses, where dukes, lords and kings became great sponsors of creative arts. At this time, continental Europe was ruled by emperors and kings in some cases, but also by a myriad of nobles who typically swore allegiance to a king as their overlord, but ruled their city-state or region pretty much autonomously within that framework. Italy, in particular, was a patchwork of very independent states, but the situation was similar in the Germanic states and in parts of France and Spain. I've already mentioned the states of Ferreira, Padua and Verona as centres of political power, mercantile wealth and artistic endeavour and others like Venice and Florence were also in the picture. The dukes and princes who ruled these states took to secular entertainments and supported resident and travelling groups of artists including players, acrobats, musicians and the like. Comedy and spectacle were very popular but tragedy was also created and presented by these groups. A preference developed for verse drama, and there was a steady move away from Latin to the vernacular, presumably to aid comprehension and appeal to a larger audience. The subsidy the rulers provided in these scenarios was often lavish, involving several days of entertainments in the grounds of castles or public spaces. First, I'm going to take a look at how tragedy developed, and then we'll move on to comedy. In 1502, seven Sophocles plays were rediscovered and a printed edition was produced by Aldus Minutius. He is a very important character in the promotion of ancient knowledge, although he turned to publishing late in life. Born sometime around 1450, he studied in Rome and was a humanist scholar who, having studied Greek and Latin, became a tutor. He developed an interest in printing in the 1480s and moved to Venice to set up a press there in 1490. Venice had become a centre for the study of Greek texts, having many editions recovered from Constantinople in the city, and it was this that attracted Aldous. In partnership with another Venetian printer, he published educational texts and then between 1495 and 1498 a five-folio edition of the works of Aristotle in Greek, and then nine comedies by Aristophanes. Erasmus was said to be so impressed with his work that he sought only the edition by the Italian printer, and in 1507 persuaded Aldus to print his Latin translations of Ophigenia at Aulus and Hecuba. Following the publication of Sophocles, he then published the surviving plays of Euripides and Aeschylus, perhaps not insignificantly, leaving the oldest and therefore the hardest Greek until last. The availability of these scripts expanded the courtly repertoire for tragedy. But Seneca remained the most popular tragedian, his type of bloody melodrama appealing to the European courts, who were often engaged in their own violent intrigues, not so distant from the Senecan view of the world. After the early plays by Musato and Laskai that I discussed last episode, there is a long wait for some significant plays to appear. The trigger for a resurgence in playwriting seems to have been the publication of an essay on Aristotle's poetics called Arte Politica by Giovanni Tresino. Aristotle's original work had been published in a Latin translation for about a century already and had been republished several times in subsequent years. In 1508 it was published in Greek but was still impenetrable to most Italian scholars until Tresino produced his explanatory essay. He then went on to abandon the Senecan model and produce plays that attempted to follow Aristotle. His 1515 play Sophonisa was not produced until 1562 but was published in 1524 and although we would not consider the content of the play of particular interest now, its publication meant that its innovations in structure and form became a talking point in the second quarter of the 16th century. Most significantly, the unities of time and place were followed and a chorus was used to divide the action. The play has no religious or educational purpose, and explicitly looks back to Greek sources. Another innovation is that the entire play is in blank verse, which is the first time this happened in Italian drama, as far as we can tell. In the play, he tells how the titular heroine, the daughter of a general, is in love with a Numidian prince, but she has denied her love when her father marries her off to the king of West Numidia. Her true love sends her poison, which she ingests. Her death saves her from a worse fate, with an unloved and unwanted husband. The story is still very melodramatic, and you might think not too far from Seneca, but it's told with restraint and only subdued violence is employed. The tragedy also retains the Greek tradition of much of the action being reported by messengers. This and the overuse of the chorus leaves it a static and otherwise rather uninspiring play. In 1548 he wrote an Italian version of the Monachmus Brothers and through his plays and poetry did much to elevate the use of Italian as a literary language. One of the centres for Italian theatre at the time was the city-state of Ferrara, situated between Bologna in the south and Padua to the north. If you can cast your mind back to episode 42 of the podcast, you will remember that I discussed Seneca's Phaedra as a revival of the play was produced there as part of Duke Ercole d'Este's carnival celebrations, organised to celebrate the betrothal of his daughter. As far as we know, it was here, in 1486, that the play received its first ever public performance, in a version renamed Hippolytus. It was then also performed in the Forum in Rome, an event that was organised by the humanist Guido Lito, founder of the Academia Romana, an institution dedicated to the study of antiquity. Leto made some adaptations to Phaedra to please the taste of the day and his sponsor, Cardinal Riario. The production was in Latin, and clearly it was a success, so much so, and perhaps surprisingly given the subject matter, that Pope Innocent VII requested a performance at his summer residence, which was duly given. The artistic circle in Ferrara made many attempts to produce new Greek tragedy, but few really succeeded. And then, in 1541, Giovanni Giraldi, known by his pen name of Cynthio, produced an extraordinary tragedy that was very popular. In Orbache, he tries, and somewhat succeeds, to outdo Seneca, by taking just about every violent and depraved act ever seen in a Greek tragedy and cramming them into one story in five acts. We have decapitation, mutilation, incest, a bitter ghost intent on bloody revenge, patricide and infanticide. In a preface, Giraldi promises tears, sighs, anguish, terrors and frightful death, and he does not disappoint. He produced two more tragedies before apparently calming down a bit and realising that what the public really wanted was a happy ending, so he turned to lighter drama and comedy. Whatever we might think of his place now, he was a pivotal point in the development of theatre because he created his own plots. He looked back to ancient Athens and Rome for structures and no doubt learnt from their storytelling, but his plotting between the set theatrical pieces was original and distinctly different from what had gone before. He also wrote on the theory of theatre too, as a champion of Seneca, who he felt unequalled for his rhetoric and serious tone. He was also a supporter of Horace in the five act model and of Aristotle for the unity of time in particular. His contemporary, Ludovico Castelvetro, evened things up a bit by seeing the unity of place as being the most important. Interestingly, neither really supported the unity of action, a view that was common in their day, but one that's been reversed in subsequent periods. Cynthia's work not only inspired Italian playwrights, but extended throughout Europe in the next century. It is through him that Senecan tragedy becomes Elizabethan revenge tragedy, and his gender-swapping comedy and plots from his prose work were plundered for the likes of As You Like It and Othello. Many tried to follow Cynthia's lead and raise the standard of Italian drama, but in the first half of the 16th century, few succeeded. Surviving examples either fail in their plotting or, and more usually, in their attempts to emulate the heightened language of Greek and Roman tragedy in the vernacular. Seneca is easier for those playwrights to model from, but many are now seen as sub-Senecan, as they are ridiculously bloody and murderous, and the characters lack the depth of those of the later revenge tragedies. Incest is a recurring theme, one might even say it's an obsession for the playwrights of this period. In the later part of the century, Luigi Grotto stands out, both as an actor-turned-playwright and for the volume of his work. And perhaps I should mention that he was blind since a few days after his birth. He still managed to study philosophy and was adept at public oration by the age of 15. Three verse comedies, two tragedies and two pastorals survive. His tragedy, Adriana, is a romantic story and believed by some to be the source for Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Somewhat fittingly, he died shortly after completing a performance as Blind King Oedipus. Another notable from the same period is Federico Della Valle with his play The Queen of Scotland, depicting the imprisonment of Mary shortly before her execution. The play was published only a few years after her death in 1587, but not performed until after his death in 1625. In fact, only one of his plays was performed in his lifetime. His focus on female characters in Extremis may have been the reason for that, although his judgement on his leading lady characters was always stern and moralistic. The example of the Queen of Scotland taking events from recent history is exceptional amongst the many revivals and adaptations of ancient Greek tragedy and Senecan Roman tragedies. This fixation with the ancient past and with adherence to stage theory of that period made the Italian rebirth of secular tragedy a rather academic exercise, and one that lacked a contemporary resonance that could attract and support a large and diverse audience. Playwrights, it seems, were pleased with showing off their own knowledge of the ancient classics, but this left them speaking to a reduced audience and one that was made in their own mould. There was no real inspiration that could engender a significant leap forward. Looking back into the ancient past that they did not fully understand and one that in many respects still eludes us today, was not going to produce anything but inferior copies that didn't speak to the contemporary audience. So much for the attempts to revive tragedy, but what of comedy? There was certainly more for the aspiring comic playwright to go on. You will remember the 10th century nun of resident in their convent in Saxony who adapted Terence for the amusement of her religious sisters. The comic skit had also been latterly incorporated into the religious plays of the more recent past and no doubt some of these had, many years ago, been carried in the memory of the travelling players so that there is a link, albeit an unprovable one, from Roman comedy to the cycle play presentation via the travelling player. So the memory of Roman comedy was more recent than that of tragedy, and in 1429, 12 comedies by Plautus were discovered by Nicholas of Cusa, in the southwest of the Germanic states. As a cleric and humanist philosopher, he rose to high positions in the church, directly serving Pope Nicholas V. Ancient commentary on Terence was also found at the same time, and both playwrights' works were soon being studied at the Universities of Europe there is some evidence of a lecture given on Adelphi by Terence being delivered as early as 1455. Terence and Plautus were both in print before the tragedies and more often reprinted, and as you've already heard, both were used in the burgeoning educational systems to teach Latin and performed at the courts of Europe well before the close of the 15th century. For my imagined aspiring comic playwright, there was good models for comedy to learn from in wider circulation than can be said of many other subjects. The very nature of Roman comedy itself looking back to Greek menander made the task somewhat easier than for the tragedians. The repetitive stock characters and domestic situations were an excellent guide for what was perennially amusing. There were few, if any, moments of political satire or specific character assassination in Greek new or Roman comedy that would have been lost on the audience centuries later. The plot twists, coincidences and dramatic structures were in plain sight in the texts, and ripe to be lifted and moved to a modern setting without too much adaptation. The Italians really took to Roman comedy, finding its sensibility similar to their own in a way that tragedy was not. What Seneca was to the revival of tragedy, Terence was to comedy. Plautus played a slightly lesser role to Terence, who was slavishly copied, adapted, and used for inspiration to the extent that it's difficult to over-exaggerate his influence. Petrarch, the greatest poet of his time, was an early adopter of this new comic form based on Terence that became known as Commedia Erudata, erudite comedy. Unfortunately, his 1349 Terentine comedy, Philogia, is lost. Other works in Latin followed, notably several works after Plautus by Tito Livio from the stable at Ferrara and Vergerio's Paulus that I mentioned last episode. But the Latin language was a problem. Even in the courts of the day, not everyone in attendance at a play would have been fluent in Latin and capable of following a complex and fast-moving plot. Many actors would also not have comprehension of the language and must have been reciting lines in badly pronounced Latin that had only been understood with laborious effort. This was no way for comedy to thrive. And once again we come back to Ferrera. If you can cast your mind back to episode 36, where I discussed the relationship between Plautus and Shakespeare, you'll remember that the city-state featured large in comedy as well as tragedy. The Menachmus brothers were shown there in 1486 as part of the betrothal celebrations. The play was one of three presented on successive evenings during those celebrations. The duke could afford to be lavish. His rule was supported politically by the Venetian Republic, and through his marriage to Eleonora, daughter of Ferdinand I of Naples, he created strong alliances that allowed his province to flourish. He was able to fight off his nephew, the true heir to the province, and attempts by the Pope to absorb the province into the Vatican states. His support for the arts was a statement of cultural difference that was part of his political stance. It was a policy that resulted in large-scale and popular events, his theatrical productions were some of the first truly secular theatre presented in Europe since antiquity. The production of Plautus was well received and the Duke oversaw many more productions of Terence and Plautus in Italian over the next 20 years. The first production is recorded by the Duke's biographer, who claims that Menachmus of Epidamnus was shown arriving on a realistic galley with a sail and the production attracted an audience of 10,000. Now we need to be a bit cautious about exaggeration here, but it's impressive if true, which it could be, as later productions are also noted for their grandeur, particularly the construction of sets, the use of stage machinery and the excellence of the musicians that were brought in from all over Italy and from France. The ongoing popularity of productions the Duke sent out to other parts of the Italian peninsula is also well attested, so much so that his theatre could be considered the preeminent form at that date. It took its time but true Italian comedy emerged in the early years of the 16th century and once again it was the fertile ground of Ferrera that provided the time and space for playwrights to gestate something new. And as the saying goes you wait for ages for a bus and then three come along at once. In this case the buses are Ludovico Ariosto, Niccolo Machiavelli and Pietro Aretino. Ludovico Ariosto was born in 1474 of noble family and lived and worked in Ferreira for most of his life. He was appointed as poet to the court and moved freely and comfortably amongst the local movers and shakers in the orbit of the Duke, but viewed them with sharply critical eyes. His greatest work was the epic poem Orlando Furioso, retelling the legend of the heroic Roland that had been the subject of epic poetry and the old French chanson in the Middle Ages. In his comic plays he used the Roman models but changed the characteristics of the stock characters to make them not only more contemporary but often very close portraits of the types of people who were actually watching his plays. In the court of Ferreira he seems to have assumed that the courtiers would both recognize their friends and enemies and possibly themselves and be prepared to laugh at them. Well, maybe he was right, but one thing he could be assured of was one of the most intellectual audiences of the time. His brightest move was to abandon Latin and write in the vernacular. La Casaria, from 1508, follows Plautus with its plot about two young men trying to get enough money together to buy two slave girls currently in the employ of a madam. The success of their mission follows a well-trodden route, familiar to anyone who knows Roman comedy, but the play shows Ariosto's talent for precise language and good individual characters. He wrote two versions of the play, one in prose and one in verse some 20 years later. Pope Leo X had a production personally performed for him, with reportedly lavish sets designed by Raphael, erected at the Castel Sant'Angelo in Rome. Ariosto followed the same pattern with E. Supple City, composing a prose version in 1509 and revisiting it in verse in 1529. He followed the Roman tradition of blending plots from earlier Greek plays by combining the plots of the captives by Plautus and the eunuch by Terence. So it will come as no surprise that the plot involves a young daughter being married off to an old friend of her father's and a far more suitable young man being aided by a cunning servant to use a complex plan and startling coincidences to ensure that the lovers are, in the end, united. This play, in turn, was used by Shakespeare for parts of Taming of the Shrew in 1593 and by William Wycherley in 1675 for The Country Wife. It's a useful fact to remember if you ever get caught up in a discussion about originality in comedy. The play was well thought of in its day, being crammed with stylish characters and dialogue that trips along at a good pace. It's also quite racy at times, pushing the boundaries of social acceptability for the time, So much so that one has to wonder what the Pope saw in it when it was presented to him in Rome, again with designs by Raphael. In this case, he used a curtain in front of the stage that was lowered into a trench as the play opened, just as it had done in the Roman period theatres. The play remained popular in the courts of Europe for decades to come, and in time even turned up in the repertoire of travelling commedia dell'arte. The Charlatan from 1520 shows some development in Ariosto's writing as he became less dependent on the Roman models and more satiric than comic. The play may have inspired Ben Jonson's Volponi and a quack doctor character looks very similar to the types that frequently pop up in Moliere's comedies. In 1528 Ariosto became responsible for organising theatrical entertainments at the court in Ferrara, where a purpose-built theatre had just been completed to his specifications. He produced his own plays and others there and acted in some too. He became a key component of artistic life in Ferrara and influenced the development of theatre spaces and presentation in Italy as other practitioners visited the court, thanks to its reputation as an artistic centre and home for many talents. His later plays maintained the satiric theme, with astrologers, quack doctors and courtly habits being his main targets. His last play, Scholastica, was unfinished when he died in 1533, but was completed by his brother. In this case, the satire is aimed at students and the clergy, so it's understandable why it had a later life adapted and translated into German by Christoph Stummel as students in 1545. He was resident in Wittenberg, where calls for church reform were already being made by Martin Luther and others, so the adapted comedy fell on open ears. Although only five of his plays survive, it is perhaps with Ariosto that we see comedy that is more than just a copy of the Roman model. In his later plays, particularly, the comedy and satire picks on contemporary themes, and he captures a moment in time that is quite distinct. With the Italian courts supporting secular theatre as an art form, it wasn't uncommon for scholars and artists from other disciplines to turn their hand to playwriting. Whether Niccolò Machiavelli fits into either of those categories is debatable, but he did write plays. Born in 1469, he studied law to follow his father's profession, but gave it up for politics. He took a low-level civic post in Florence and then climbed rapidly through the ranks, so that by the time he was 30, he was Chancellor of the Republic. He thrived in the political intrigues of the time, as the papal and other city-states sought alliances for their benefit in an ever-changing patchwork of trust and mistrust. It made Machiavelli cynical, but he also had a vision of a unified Italy that was centuries ahead of its time. When he was in his fifties and still a vigorous politician, the Republic was taken over by the Medici and he was forced into exile. With space and time to reflect, he wrote down his thoughts on the affairs of men and the behaviours of princes. Published in 1513 as The Prince, he had produced a blueprint for the behaviour needed to gain and hold power, by whatever means, however self-serving. It remains a much admired work to this day, and led to his name becoming a pejorative term. He followed this with The Art of War and A Less Well-Regarded History of Florence. More as a sideline than anything else, he produced some play scripts in the Commedia Erudata mode, so it's more than a little ironic that one of these is the only comedy of the genre that is still occasionally revived today. But before we get to that, even a writer as great as Machiavelli undoubtedly was still found his route to comedy rooted in the Roman theatre. In Glitzia, written in 1506, the bitter and cynical Machiavelli takes Aristotle at his word when he said that comedy should reveal the universal frailties of man and the worst side of human nature. The plot concerns a Florentine household, where the master tries to cover up an affair by marrying his ward to his servant, while his wife plans a marriage for the same girl to the local bailiff. A page is substituted for the bride on the wedding night, and a series of coincidences lead to a recognition scene and the return of the young bride's father to save the day. The head of the house is shown not as completely irredeemable, but temporarily blinded by his lustful desires, so it moves away a little from the Roman stock character. Any admiration for this play is for the bright and clever dialogue rather than its form or plotting. La Mandragola, the Mandrake, was composed in 1520, and is the play now considered to be Machiavelli's theatrical masterpiece. The first thing to note about it is that this is a completely original play. It certainly owes something still to Roman comedy, but it's not an adaptation or a mash-up of original Greek or Roman plays. The characters are much more individuals than stock characters, and as one would expect from Machiavelli, the wit is sharp and the world view is cynical. In the end, none of the characters are spared in this out-and-out farce. Here is a brief summary of the plot. The ageing Calfucci, a respected lawyer, has a beautiful and virtuous wife, Lucrezia, but no heir. While travelling to Florence from Paris, Calimaco, a worthless young man, hears of this desirable woman and the situation that she's in, and gains the help of Ligurio, a parasite character, to help him seduce her. Hearing that Calfucci cannot perform in the bedroom, they think up an elaborate plan. Ligurio tells Calfucci that a recently arrived Parisian doctor can help him, and introduces a disguised Calimaco who then tells the old man that the king and the court in France are using liquid from the mandrake plant to aid fertility. The problem is that anyone who dares to use the extract from the plant is doomed to just a single night of exuberant lovemaking before a quick death overtakes them. When there is understandable reluctance for a husband to undertake this challenge, the solution has been to fool a lascivious youth, the type that with their brains in their trousers, into believing that they have ensnared a lover of noble birth, tricking them into taking the potion and performing the deed before their inevitable death. Cavrucci agrees to this plan and, with much cajoling and the help of his mother-in-law, persuades his wife to reluctantly partake in it. Calimaco, having lost his doctor's disguise, allows himself to be kidnapped, drinks a harmless substitute potion and enjoys a night with Lucrezia, who realises what she's been missing out on and both find much mirth in laughing at her impotent and credulous husband. On the strength of this play, many commentators regret that Machiavelli did not write more often for the stage, but his last years were taken up with attempts to regain power after the Medici rule in Florence was overthrown. None of them were successful, and he died in 1527, aged 58. He left a penniless widow and family, but a literary and political legacy that is still influential today. Pietro Aretino is not as well known as Machiavelli or Ariosto, but in many ways he is the most modern of the three great early Renaissance comic playwrights. He didn't get to playwriting until later in life, but the story of his life is so fantastical that it simply can't be glossed over. He was born in 1492 of dubious parentage. His mother was Margherita Bonci, who made part of her living as an artist's model. Her sometime lover was the local nobleman Luigi Bacchi, and later in life, Pietro claimed that he was his father, a statement that Bacchi's other sons seemed to largely accept. But earlier in life, he claimed to be nothing more than the illegitimate son of a cobbler. He appears to have enjoyed that anonymity and changed his story to suit his current circumstances, and much of what we see of him in history is quite likely a construction of his own making, but there are some hard and fast facts that we can rely on, more or less. Whatever his exact beginnings, the story he told most consistently was that he was an exemplary student until he was expelled from school for writing a poem at the age of 12 that was highly disrespectful to the church. Rather than return home to face the wrath of his family, he walked to Perugia where he became apprenticed to a bookbinder where he thrived until being expelled from the city for defacing a mural of the Virgin Mary in the town square. He spent time in Rome, Venice and Bologna in a succession of menial jobs that always ended in some disgrace or other. Some of the jobs ascribed to him may be the invention of his enemies, of which he had many, but he tried everything from tax collector to mule skinner and from street performer to hangman's assistant. Eviction from a monastery for an unidentified act of lechery prompted a return to Rome when he was in his early twenties he found a position as a servant in the home of banker Agostino Chigi and amused himself writing comic poems. When he showed some of these to Chigi's guests, they recognised his comic and witty talent and encouraged him. Now two years before this, Pope Leo X had been gifted an elephant by King Manuel of Portugal, and the Pope had grown rather attached to the animal, who was named Hanno, and his affection for it rubbed off on the citizens of Rome too. So when the animal died, the pontiff and many in the city were grief-stricken. The carcass was put into a specially built tomb, and the Pope commissioned Raphael, no less, to paint an image of the poor elephant in oil on canvas to drape over the tomb. Finding all this a little much, Aretino wrote a comic pamphlet called The Last Will and Testament of the Elephant, full of satiric comments and comic snipes aimed at the great and the good of Roman society from the Pope downwards. The pamphlet proved popular with the citizens and its authorship was soon traced back to Aretino, who was called into the presence of the Pope. By all accounts, he feared the worst and was looking forward to a spell of incarceration at the pontiff's pleasure, but Leo X was the most tolerant of popes, liked to show that he could take a joke and was not offended by coarse humour. Rather than throwing him in jail, he offered Aretino a place in his household as court poet come jester. For three years he led a good life under Leo X, but misjudged badly when the pontiff died. Not only did he write caustic poems ridiculing the election process for his successor, and the likely candidates, but ultimately backed the wrong man, and when Adrian VI was elected on a ticket of moral reformation, Aretino saw the way things were going, and left the city in a hurry. He then found a position in the court at Mantua, but was able to return to Rome in little more than a year, when Adrian died relieving Rome of the burden of his moral crusade, and a Medici pope was elected. He immediately created a scandal by writing lewd sonnets to accompany illustrations of sexual positions by Guido Romano. They came to the attention of powerful men in the Vatican Curia, whom Aretina had already upset with his previous satires, and again he found it prudent to leave Rome. Through the cajoling of patrons and former patrons and a great deal of fawning, he managed not only to elicit the forgiveness of the pope, but was appointed a knight of Rhodes and received a pension. Always full of confidence, Saratino continued to write poems that jibed at those in power. With one, he managed to upset Bishop Gilberti, an official who oversaw the issuing of papal bulls, and shortly after he was attacked in the street by men in the bishop's pay. He was stabbed and had two fingers cut off in the attack, but he survived. That, and the Pope's inaction over the matter, was the last straw, and he left Rome, this time for good. He spent some time with the Medici family, some of it serving in the army and seeing action against invading German mercenaries, and then returned to the court at Mantua. In 1520, he wrote Pronostici, a mock almanac predicting the fall of the great and the good in Rome, over the following year. The Pope once again took exception and could reach far, so Aretino again had to move, this time to Venice, where he felt well outside of the papal sphere of influence. His playwriting was only a small part of his literary output. He put most of his efforts into poems and letters, but it was still a prolific output during his time at Mantua, and by his own account he churned plays out at speed. He claimed to have written The Philosopher in Ten Mornings and The Hypocrite in Ten Sleepless Nights. He continually rewrote his scripts, so dating them is difficult. The play of the court from around 1545 at the latest is generally thought to be his best work where a pious and good man arrives in Rome to learn how to behave in papal society only to be swept up in the Roman underworlds of taverns and brothels where he learns the true ways of the papal overlords. Aretino continued to write from Venice, losing none of his vitriol against those with religious power. He became something of a caricature of himself in older age, having become fat on overeating and drinking. He was excessive in just about everything. In the end, apoplexy took him off in 1556. It was a death that was met with some sadness from his admirers, but with much relief from those that he had in his sights, which included popes and emperors, many of whom had lavished gifts on him in the hope of appeasing his caustic tongue before he directed it at them. When a bishop commented to him that he had spoken ill of everyone except God, he pointed out that this was only because he hadn't met God yet. In the life and works of Aretino, Machiavelli and Ariosto, we can characterise the early Renaissance as a movement of two halves. One is sumptuous and lavish, driven by wealth and power. The other is sordid and cruel, with its feet firmly in plebeian Italy. In these three playwrights the two meet, and something emerges that is almost a new drama, but not quite. Moments of individual brilliance can be picked out of their work, but they are still half-turned to the Roman past. More time was needed to truly break free from the grip that comedy and tragedy of the past held on them. Next time, in the second part of the story of the Italian Renaissance, the plays and playwrights keep coming as the religious and political landscape in Italy changes. With the Reformation in Europe looming large over Italy and the Papal States, writers became more daring and saw new possibilities on the stage. While you wait for that, please do have a look at the podcast pages on Patreon, where I've posted the first episode on the details from Henslow's diary, and a new episode that focuses on his brother-in-law, business partner and principal actor, Edward Allen. You can get all of that and more at patreon.com t-h-o-e-t-p for a small monthly fee. Alternatively, please just spread the word about the podcast to anyone you think would be interested. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp.